Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to It's Rainmaking Time. This is Kim Greenhouse. I'd like you to give a warm welcome to Mr. Guy Kramer, who's the president and CEO of Hyperstealth. He is the inventor of the passive negative ion generator, and he began to develop a new military camouflage based on mathematical fractals. Imagine that, taking camouflage into a new area of science that had been proposed but had never been able to be designed. He is providing the Star Trek, a totally different generation of camouflage. He is retained by special force teams who he has helped adapt their combat gear for performance enhancement without side effects, often associated with drugs or dietary supplements, often required for duty and training. He was also commissioned by King Abdullah II of Jordan to develop a digital camouflage pattern that surpassed current U.S.-issued uniforms. The king has approved this KA-2 pattern for Jordanian armed forces and police, and 390,000 uniforms have since been manufactured for the country of Jordan. The reason that I've invited Guy Kramer on is because I'm interested in his technology perspective, his philosophical perspective, and where we really are today with the whole area of technology and camouflage. He has developed over 10,000 patterns, which are all under international copyright. He's announced something called the Quantum Stealth Light-Bending Material Non-Powered Adaptive Camouflage, which he will talk to you about. Ladies and gentlemen, God help us all. Welcome Guy Kramer of Hyperstealth to its rainmaking time. Good afternoon in Canada. Good afternoon. How are you? I'm good. You're scary. <laughs> You're scary. I... Possibly to some people. <laughs> yeah. Let's talk a little bit about it. I've been doing some deep thinking about your work. Obviously, you have a technology perspective and knowledge that's quite advanced to do what you're doing. And obviously, there's a need and an interest in many parts of the world. But let me tell you something. I have a background earlier in my life as a tournament tennis player. And when I was playing tennis, I'm an attack-style tennis player. So that means I'd serve and volley and serve and volley and serve and volley and listen for openings with my own instrument. And obviously, if I'm playing an opponent and we come to the match and my opponent disappears from the court, am I playing the game of tennis? I've been really thinking about this. I thought, how do I talk to Guy about some of my concerns about this? In other words... If I'm playing tennis with you, Guy, and you're on the other side of the court and you disappear in the middle of a match, but the ball keeps coming over, <laughs> what game are we playing? And that's my question well, to you. You're playing at a disadvantage, and I'm playing at a massive advantage. Well, for sure. And that's the whole goal of the quantum stealth material, is to provide the good guys that massive advantage that they need. Sure. But my question is, isn't this a game changer for everything we understand to be a combat situation? It can be, and it really depends on where the governments, both the Canadian and the U.S. government, that have access to this end up utilizing it. And really, the sky is the limit and is only limited by their imagination at this point and, obviously, budgets. And neither country at this stage has a lot of extra money to make aircraft carriers invisible, let's say. So are we going to be seeing big-ticket items disappearing in front of us? Probably not in the near future, but it definitely provides a possibility to them down the road. It would seem to me that a part of your work, if it were in the United States, would be classified, wouldn't it? Yeah, both countries have classified this technology at this time. You mean the USA? Well, I'm a Canadian citizen. Right. 
also the Canadian government had to be the first to decide what was going to happen with this technology. They have classified it, and the Americans have turned around and classified it as well. And for a time being, they were at two different classification levels because you had both countries looking at it slightly differently. And they've now come to an agreement on, okay, this is the level of the classification on this technology for both countries at this particular time. As the CEO and person who developed this, was it complicated to be interacting with different countries' wants and needs and maybe priorities? Yeah, absolutely. The real big problems that we've run into have been getting both countries to agree to work together on this. And typically it's not an issue. The problem is because of the groups that we're dealing with that are very compartmentalized from the mainstream government groups, many of them are quite secretive in what they do. It was very difficult getting even one person from Canada being able to communicate with one person from the U.S. on this. And only in January of this year did that all occur. And now the Canadian government came around, oh, I'm guessing now about three months ago, and approved us to move forward with the United States on this technology. So I was really in limbo for almost a year and a half, trying to get the proper approvals through the right channels to be able to move this into the United States apart from Canada and make sure that Canada was well in the loop on what was happening there on that side of it. So Definitely, I would say out of everything that I've done, the technology for me was the easy part. The politics and the red tape and the bureaucracy has been the most difficult part of this whole thing. Was there ever a time where you were concerned for your well-being in bringing this all the way through to the marketplace? Not really. I've been working with different military groups for oh, the past 10 years on a number of different things. And this is just another tool for them to utilize. And it's not just me who knows about it. There's many others who have seen it and understand how it works and the whole bit. So, yeah, I'm the one that's in the public spotlight on, okay, he knows about it, but it's not like I'm the only one that knows and understands this. And a lot of people need to understand that what they see in Hollywood in the Jason Bourne movies is not what happens in real life. And I don't have black helicopters following me, and I don't have men in black knocking on my door. The reality is, if you were to make a movie about this, people would be bored to death. Yeah, I didn't actually think that any of that happened. I more meant, sometimes you can have a pioneer that develops a technology, and a government will knock on their door, sometimes in the U.S., if it's at a high level like this, and say, look, we need to own this, or we're going to shut it down. And this could even be with encryption, something as obvious as encryption. So that's why I'm asking you. It's more a yeah, real practical it, well, type be, of... Again, you know. because of my citizenship, yeah. the Americans don't have the same capability as they would if I was a U.S. citizen. That obviously is beneficial, but I don't perceive there being any dangerous aspects to this at this point. I mean, yes, I need to be very aware of what I say and what I do right. uh, because of the classified nature of the material. But other than that, I don't believe that I have any issues that would warrant a real concern for my safety. And that being said, I, you just need common sense in the way you deal with people and items. I mean, we don't leave the material lying around in an unsecured facility. There's many things that you can do to make sure that you're being very safe about what you're doing. And the government, for the most part, I believe has my back on a lot of these security issues out there. So sure. the, the answer is... 
we need to be smart about it, but we also don't need to be overly paranoid looking over our shoulder no, no, I understand. Uh, every second of every day. Right, yeah. of course. When I talk to you about the tennis example of you and I are playing tennis on the court, and then all of a sudden you disappear, but the ball comes over the net, and I don't know where you are. <laughs> mm-hmm. I'm not saying exactly how you said it, but you said it gives the good guys the advantage. But yes. the thing is, that's not the business you're in. You're in the business of making the supplies, right? The products to support the good guys, right? I'm in the business of developing the product to its maximum efficiency. Correct. I am out of the loop once the governments that have been authorized, and like I said before, it's yeah. the Canadians in the United States at this point. We do have many other countries asking about it that the Canadians and the Americans have not authorized and are not yet willing to authorize because of the nature of the technology on this. So it's a very limited group that we work with right now, but if they decide to do something bigger and outside of the current scope, really it's not up to me to step in and say no at that point in time. I mean, for them, the cat is out of the bag on it. I can't close that oh, exactly. uh, genie in the bottle. Exactly. I was just going to say it's the genie that's already out of the bottle. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about your background and what led you to doing this for a living? <laughs> Well, I I worked with my grandfather for about six years as his research assistant, and he was a professional engineer, the only professional engineer in North America to get a certificate without any post-secondary schooling. He developed the walkie-talkie in World War II and had 50-plus patents to his name, most of them electronic patents, like the electronic piano, oil-finding devices, the propulsion method for bullet trains, You name it, he was involved in it. Very much an innovator. Wasn't very good at the business side of taking his developments and putting them out to market. And in the time that I spent with him, he taught me about what he knew, the science aspect, but he also taught me about people. And when I was working with him, he was in his mid to late 80s. And so I basically absorbed all that wisdom like a sponge. And that's made me a better president and CEO because I'm going into these meetings with not only my experience, my life experience, but also his. And when you've got 50 plus patents to your name, you run into people that are not looking out for your best interest. And so he had learned through those decades of the pros and cons of dealing with intellectual property and science. And a true scientist just wants to get the information out there. And they're curious. And so he's looking for answers to his questions. And once he was done with that, then taking that device and actually putting it into the business world was never an easy thing for him. And quite often, deals would collapse at the last minute because he didn't know how to handle that aspect of it. So I've surrounded myself with business leaders. One of them was a former global chairman and CEO of Realty World with many thousands of people underneath him. He knows the stuff and has basically taken me under his wing and taught me about the business corporate world. Taking both those items and merging them has really been a pro to me. And it's not like I'm going into this not expecting to absorb anything new. I mean, every day I'm learning something and I'm hoping one day I'm able to pass that wisdom on to someone else. What my grandfather provided me is absolutely invaluable to what I've done today. But basically, he was an innovator and it was about looking at problems and trying to find solutions. And in this case, The quantum stealth, which really is the pinnacle of the camouflage that we develop, was just part of the stepping stones in always trying to find a better way to do something. And a static camouflage uniform just doesn't cut it if you're moving in and out of different buildings, different backgrounds, different foliage. 
it may work in one area and not work in another. And actually, it's funny when you talk about camouflage, if you walk around in camouflage in a normal everyday setting, you stand out. You do not blend in. And so the trick is to find something that blends into everything. And that's what quantum stealth is. It blends into everything. And there's no need to dial in something or have computers control what it's doing. That way, we've removed any kind of electronic signatures out of it as well. So what you have is a very simple to use device that can make someone invisible in almost every situation out there. I would imagine that if people are out and they have this camouflage on, doesn't their weaponry show up, like stick out out of nowhere? And how do you see camouflage developing to be able to also camouflage their guns or whatever they're using as their weapon? We can right now camouflage everything on a soldier, gun included, with this quantum stealth. And so there is no signature coming out the other side through the visual, the infrared, or the thermal spectrum. We've managed to try and do the whole package at once, and we believe that's what we've got right now. How does it do with radar and other different parts of the spectrum? I can't go into details on that, but I can tell you the main parts of the spectrum that the military is concerned with, we have, in most cases, 100% concealment. Because now, I guess, we're in such a different world. You're dealing with satellite, you're dealing with drones, you're dealing with all kinds of technology identifiers, right? Yes. So do you feel that you still have more to do on that, or do you feel like you have a complete package for right now? Oh, no. We recently came out with version 2 because of some drawbacks that kept coming up with our version 1. That version 2 has superseded version 1 in many of the applications. It doesn't mean version 1 is now obsolete. It just means that there are... Improvements, um, additions. Yeah, and we're now working on version 3. So there are always things that you can do to make it better and make it more functional or lighter weight. There's many, many different aspects. And again, I can't go into details about what these version improvements are. Right, I understand. um, Yeah. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back. I want you to consider that the water we drink is crucial to our health and well-being. I also want you to consider that chronic dehydration is the precursor to a disease state. The work of Dr. Batman Jelic demonstrates this. Many of us are trying to find alkalized water to drink, thinking that's going to be the answer to impacting our health and well-being. Most of us don't know that if we cannot get our body hydrated, we cannot achieve continuous alkalinity, which is a promoter of health and well-being. The physics of water is totally distinct from the chemistry of water. And until you understand what that means to health and wellness, you can be lost in trying to understand what is good healthy water to drink. Dr. Jacques Benveniste was right when he said that water has memory and is alive. And Dan Nelson is right when he says there's a distinction between irrigating the body and hydrating it. And most of us attempt to hydrate it by drinking more water. Cells cannot assimilate most of the water that we drink, so our cells are dehydrated all the time. Learn the science about this by going to the Positron Group and consider purchasing Wayback Water, the fast track to hydration by Dan Nelson, who's a physicist, an educator, and a man who's committed that we have healthy, remarkable drinking water. 
go to waybackwater.com or call Nancy Ainsley at 870-741-5877. And back to the show. Maybe you can talk about, in general, your background when you're developing this military camouflage based on mathematical fractals. So many people now are into fractals. Mm-hmm. What do you mean by a fractal? A fractal is a natural geometric shape found in nature. To give you an example of that, if you look at the leaf of a fern and then look at the small leaves that make up the large leaf, it's almost identical in shape. The only difference is scale. And so that's what we see with a lot of fractals is a scale difference. So the twig on a tree, if you didn't have a scale reference, could actually be perceived as a tree with branches if they were put side by side and you had no scale reference. What we try and do is take all these geometric shapes that the subconscious has cataloged and we try to implement that into camouflage. And what that does is it causes the brain to actually skip over a camouflage pattern because the brain is going, okay, there's a shape that I've perceived before and I don't want to analyze these shapes every time I go out. And so your brain quickly does these calculations as it looks at a, a forest setting. And if it sees no anomalies, it will just continue to keep scanning out there. And so what we're trying to do is place not only the camouflage pattern, but the pattern integrated with that fractal to make it much more difficult for the brain to zero in on that anomaly. And then we use other fractals once the brain does zero in on it to try and trick the brain even further to postpone the recognition of what the target is. So typically in combat, you can't shoot until you identify what you're looking at. So it's not just a matter of identifying an anomaly, but it recognizing exactly what it is that you're looking at. And if we can cause that time delay to get into the 10, 20, 30 second level, I mean, special forces groups that I talk to, they're looking for a two second advantage. So if I can give them a 10 second or 20 second advantage, that means all the difference in the world to them. And it means that they can actually do what they need to do and react to the enemy long before the enemy knows what to react to out there. That's fantastic. I guess when it comes to the fractals, when you wrote about it on your website, it talked about mathematical fractals. But aren't fractals also based on physics? Well, they are. They're geometric shapes. And it's three-dimensional geometric shapes, not just two-dimensional. And so the calculation actually becomes quite complex. And when I got into the game of camouflage, I looked at what is the U.S. military looking at the next step in camouflage? Where do they foresee this going? And I kept coming across fractal integration into camouflage, but no one had been able to do it. And so I managed, again, through the lessons that my grandfather taught me, to figure out how to integrate those fractals into the camouflage. And then the testing that took place about two years after I had been able to do this confirmed, yes, it was a much better camouflage than the camouflage without the fractals out there. And now it's a matter of how far can we take that printed camouflage with those geometric shapes. And we're constantly finding improvements to that aspect as well. So yes, quantum stealth is out there. It's the pinnacle, but that's not going to be available to everyone out there. And so what we're trying to do is make sure that with the other technology that people see, that we are constantly making the strides to get that up to the best that we can out there. And and that's part of the reason why I have so many patterns developed is I'm never satisfied with what I did yesterday there's always a way to improve out there. And I think a lot of the people that were looking at camouflage in the past were looking at it kind of like going into a museum and looking at the Mona Lisa and saying, well, that's the only way you can paint a painting. And everyone has the Mona Lisa, but with different colored lips and different colored eyes. 
we basically looked at it and said, no, no, you can do this 10,000 different ways and more. And we capitalized on that time when we understood that before we really started to publicly release a lot of those patterns out there. So by the time we started to suggest that there was many more ways to do this, we already had many of these ideas figured out. And then once we had those figured out, trying to build upon those solutions that we had come up with as well. How did you come to connect the fractal part and the subconscious part and the subconscious recognition? Like, how did you make that link? Just in your own thinking. There is classified research that I've been privy to in the field of camouflage. It shows how the brain actually reviews a target area. And very, very extensive testing has gone on in this field where they actually track the eyeball and how anomalies appear, how color appears, how contrast is processed. All these different aspects come into play. And without that, I probably wouldn't have been able to do what I needed to do. So I owe a lot to the people that I've partnered up with and who are the experts in the field. And one of those people uh, is Lieutenant Colonel Timothy O'Neill. He's the father of digital camouflage, probably the world expert on camouflage out there. And when I linked up with him and we started working on government programs, he was able to share that wealth of information that he had built up over the years on the programs he had done at West Point Military Academy. And then we had both worked with the U.S. Marine Corps on their snow camouflage. We'd worked with snipers in the U.S. Army and done a number of these programs. And so we very quickly learned from a lot of the testing that was done that subjective testing or even subjective ideas really didn't stand up to objective testing. And we were seeing a lot of things where the special forces groups were doing some very odd things out there. And and we would ask them, so why are you doing that? And they would just say, well, because it works better. So because it works better, we all do it. And you're sitting there going, okay, that doesn't make any sense to me. We would actually go into the lab, do the testing on it, the objective testing, and then come back to them and say, what you guys thought was actually totally incorrect. And you can actually be spotted quicker doing what you're doing rather than doing what we are showing in this testing is actually the best solution. And so the special forces teams learning upon that would start to modify how they were doing things out there based on that objective testing. So, yeah, subjective testing, if you just throw a bunch of guys out there and say, so how does it look? you'll get a general idea of how it works, but it doesn't necessarily give you the best answer to the problem out there. And and that's something we constantly run into, even to this day. We're going back to testing that someone else has done saying, well, how did you come up with these results? Well, we threw the guys out in the field and we asked them how it looked. That's not a proper way to test something. And if you're going to test camouflage properly, you can't just put a pattern in the middle of a photo and everyone knows it's right in the center of the photo, and then ask people how well it does. Well, you've removed the first most important ingredient in camouflage, trying to find it. So you're actually only looking at the second aspect, trying to identify what it is, and to a lesser degree, okay, how well does it blend in? You know where it is, you know the anomalies there, and you're now looking at the edges, trying to figure out, okay, how well does this blend? But that doesn't actually give you the most important, how well does it actually work out there? These are big issues that we deal with governments all the time, and many within the industry still refuse to go down a proper path and look at it correctly and will basically take an easier way out to do these subjective tests rather than the objective testing. 
Do you think it's because they've adapted to a certain way of doing things and it's just they don't want to change something they've been doing for a long time? Do you think it's ego or do you think it's fear? Uh, probably a lot of both. Yeah. And no one likes to rock the boat and change the way things are done. And quite often they don't know how to do them properly. They understand there may be a better way to do it, but in order to implement it, they can't actually plan it properly. And so they revert back to the easier system. And it frustrates me to the end zone every time I, I run into it because you're sitting there going, will you allow me to show you how to do this? Well, we can't because you're not a citizen of the United States. And that becomes an issue right now. And so I shake my head. I mean, I'm willing to offer. I understand the pros and the cons of this, and they won't take my help. And to this day, my citizenship is still an issue with the United States. But it's one thing that we've found workarounds in most cases, but not in all cases. I'm not willing to change my citizenship, and I understand it's going to cause issues out there and problems. But as a person who is involved in science, I'm not looking at that aspect I'm looking at trying to solve the problem the best I can, and quite often I can do it. They just won't ask for my help. Any kind of disruptive solution like this that is uncommon, people did not see it coming, because really you have a whole system solution. You're dealing with it not even just as a product. You're dealing with it from the brain of what humans are doing out in the field. You're starting from a different starting place. And so the receptivity comes in time. The receptivity will be forced upon certain people because it'll be out there, developed, already integrated in some countries. You know, if the U.S. doesn't want to be behind in this, the U.S. will have to become receptive. It's okay that the U.S. is upset that it didn't emanate from here. And that's part of the problem with all discoveries. That's the first resistance to it. Well, it didn't emanate from here. Well, too bad. The greatest stuff emanates from everywhere. Yes, and my grandfather ran into that problem with the walkie-talkie in that he was never in it for the fame or the fortune. And so as the family tried to promote him and these inventions and these discoveries, he didn't want any part of it. And he kept saying, talk about it when I die. But while I'm alive, it doesn't matter to me and I don't want any part of that. And so you would get people screaming from other countries that they had done it first. And quite often in history, he who yells the loudest writes the history books out there. And so it was only in the last 12 to 15 years, just prior to my grandfather's passing, where he didn't have a lot of energy to fight the family, that they actually managed to get the Canadian government to recognize his contributions in those areas. And because of that, he received the Order of Canada, which is the highest order you can receive as a civilian. That permeated through the international community. And the Americans finally conceded, yes, he was the first to do so. But prior to that, they were kind of spouting off that they were the first to do it. And it was a Motorola walkie-talkie, and you're sitting there shaking your head going, okay, these guys were two years behind what my grandfather had done, but he doesn't want to fight that fight. And so I've been there on the front lines. I fully understand those issues, and I'm quite happy being a Canadian. And so if that's a problem for me, then so be it, and I will work around it if that's the case. I started my company, the Rainmaking Company, because I noticed 34 years ago that pioneers and visionaries don't have the proper support to bring their products and services and solutions to the world, and that if they have anything really robust that could be potentially disruptive to existing ways of doing things or existing infrastructure, that VC capital was not going to necessarily fund them, and that there was really no way to fund them in a traditional way, 
and that they need a totally different type of support. So I really understand what you've gone through and what your grandfather went through. The domain of discovery has all these components in it. I think that the people that are able to bring their works, particularly if they have a disruptive solution that's very, very helpful and robust in whatever it is, it's basically the test of time and how you navigate it. And it seems to me that if you're patient and you keep going and you navigate it responsibly and you understand these complex dynamics that this is a turf issue. (laughs) People forget the military, these big agencies and all that, they're still people. Many of these people are mature, and many of them are not mature at all. And that's why they can't work together with other Mm -hmm. nations. It's not really that different. You know, what's happening in the world is a microcosm of humanity in general. So I want to tell you that I wish you the best on your path. It is scary if you and I were playing tennis. And when I get to Canada, if you ever want to hit the ball and you disappear, (laughs) I will find you. If you put on your gear on the tennis court with me and you disappear, I'm bringing a ninja in from Japan. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. (laughs) And I know that you traditionally are reluctant to do these media interviews, but I want to thank you very much, Guy Kramer, for joining us on It's Rainmaking Time and also for sharing a little bit about yourself and your grandfather and your path, also the complexity of what you're going through, because a lot of pioneers are not real happy to share the complex part of their journey. So I want to thank you for that. You're welcome. And thank you for being on the show. I'm hoping that this helps other people out there. Yes. Thank you very much. Ladies and gentlemen, we've been talking to, learning from, and listening to Guy Kramer, the president and CEO of HyperStealth and the inventor of the passive negative ion generator. You can find out more about his work at hyperstealth.com. Thanks again, Guy. Thank you.